So um, I want to talk about uh, some of the early teachings and and take this particular phrase that I find intriguing and and build from that. Um, and so I'm I'm gonna uh, talk a little bit about some of the suttas and uh, and and particularly the what are considered to be the first two teachings that the Buddha gave, which is kind of intriguing, you know, in a way. I mean, we, we don't know exactly historically how all this played out, but there's a there's a kind of logic to the these two suttas. The first one's called Setting in Motion the Wheel of Dhamma or Dhamma Chaka Pavatana, <laughs> which I've worked for ages to memorize saying that in Pali. I really like that. And and so it it has several themes in it. It's quite rich. The, the this setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma is is something you can really work with. Uh, the teachings uh, pretty much give you an outline for your life in a way. You know, it introduces the theme of the middle way, and then the uh, eightfold path, and the four uh, four noble truths, which can really core Buddhist teachings. And then there's one phrase in the sutta that kind of gets picked up for the second sutta, which is uh, focuses on on the question of self or not self. Uh, so, and you know, I, I like the kind of stories and characters that show up in the suttas. And the thing, these these first two suttas are just given to five people. They're the the five ascetics that the Buddha was. Uh, you know, living with, traveling with, studying with before he went off on his own and had his final breakthrough. And so, so he knew them and, and went and he, and he was the kind of lead ascetic among them and almost starved himself to death, which is talked about in another sutta, but, um, when he decided that starving himself to death wasn't the way to enlightenment, <laughs> duh. <laughs> Sorry, it seems sort of obvious, but you know, what do I know? It's a good try. Uh, um, you know, when he decided to take food, they the other ascetics were like, oh, he's gone soft, never mind. Let's go, let's move on. And and so after he has his breakthrough, he's trying to figure out like who's who's going to be able to understand this teaching. This is really profound, and not many people are going to get it. So then he remembers oh, those five guys, and, um, and they are guys. Uh, there is that. And so he he finds them in a place called Baran Baranasi in the suttas. I guess it's Baranasi now, in the Deer Park, and he gives. And so he gives them this first teaching and and apparently like one of them has gets enlightened just in that first sutta, right? Which is pretty cool, Kandana. And then after the second sutta, they all get enlightened. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's pretty good. It must have been pretty good talks, you know. I mean, yeah, sort of, you know, I like to imagine the you know being there at the time of the Buddha, I always figure I'd be way in the back, like because I'd be like, oh, I don't know, what did he say? Um, but but obviously, 
you know, hearing the teachings directly from him must have been such a powerful experience. And these these people, these who he calls the monks, bhikkhus, these monks were obviously already very advanced practitioners. You know, it's not like they just walked in off the street. Um, they, you know, they'd, they'd been practicing for a long time. They just didn't quite have the, the keys that the Buddha gives them. So, okay, starting with this setting in motion, the wheel of Dhamma, there's just one particular phrase I want to focus on. And it comes when the Buddha gives the description or the definition of the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. And a lot of this is very sort of, you know, makes sense. It's very, it just, sure, we can all agree with this where he says, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, you know. The only thing people sometimes will be debate about the birth part, they'll be like, but birth is really beautiful. And then I'm like, well, you know, have you ever been to one? <laughs> it's actually really difficult. So anyway, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Okay. I think pretty logical. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Definitely. Definitely don't like being with displeasing things. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Always always sad. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Darn. Okay, but here's the phrase. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. It's like after all of that, like very straightforward stuff, it's sort of like you're saying, you know, just the easy way to think of this or to, like briefly, the five aggregates subject to clinging or suffering. And immediately you're like, Okay, what? Like the five aggregate subject of suffering. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. Um, it's just such a funny little phrase. So, so to start with this word aggregates, you know, we're always translating the Pali to get to these things. So it's a translation of the word in Pali, Kanda. In Sanskrit, it's Skanda. And, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as aggregates. One of the other translations, which I love, is heaps. Just H-E-A-P-S, heaps. So, um, instead, you know, aggregate sounds sort of more sophisticated and interesting, you know. Heaps, not so much. And so, what are these heaps? There's five of them, apparently. The, the five heaps are form or, or body our feelings, our perceptions, our volitional formations, our mental formations, and consciousness. And the reason they are heaps or aggregates is that they aren't, your body isn't one thing. It's a bunch of things that come together. It's a heap of, a heap of stuff. It's an aggregate. Your feelings are not one thing. They're many different things. Your perceptions are not one thing. There's a bunch of things that are your perceptions, your mental formations, volitional formations, which uh, that's one of the terms that maybe needs a little definition, but and uh, not one thing. And consciousness, according to the Buddha, consciousness only arises with contact, with sense contact. So it's not one thing. So it's not so much that I want to define the five aggregates, but I'll, I'll do my best. 
but I, I, it's that's just really the starting point of this. So, so form the form is essentially our body, but but from the, this next sutta, there is some implication. It could mean just anything, any object, any physical object. But let's start start by saying, in terms of being subject to clinging, it's we cling to our body. We cling to to you know, this is me. Feeling refers to the feeling tone, the the first impression of any sense experience. So every time there's a a thought, a sound of the sight, a taste, a smell, a touch, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's kind of the starting point. It, it moves on from there, but this is a key idea in Buddhism because the pleasant triggers craving, the unpleasant triggers aversion, the neutral triggers falling asleep or non non attention. So, uh, so it's really helpful to see those, and that's part of actually the foundation of mindfulness. But let's not get too off the track here. So, feeling arises when feeling arises. There is then a, something more to it. The content of it. The, we start to put a label on the experience so we don't we don't really pay attention to that much of the feeling like when you smell fresh baked bread you don't think oh pleasant smell you think mm, fresh baked bread and that's the perception because perception is labeling or naming based on our own memory of things so i remember smelling bread that's what it smells like pleasant and then mental formation or the volitional formation fits better with this. That, you know, when you're walking by a bakery, you smell the fresh baked bread, pleasant feeling, perception that it's bread. Volition is I'm going into the bakery and getting some of that bread, right? So we see how this kind of plays out. And then consciousness is just the awareness of smell which is, it's funny that it's the last one of the aggregates, but it doesn't really fall naturally in any place. Uh, but let me just say, to simplify this, because this is a teaching that you won't like, if this is the first time you've heard it, I don't think you're going to walk away with like the, the aggregates memorized, you know, and it's not so important. For our purposes, it's enough just to say that the aggregates refer to body and mind. So the first aggregate is body. And the other four are your mind, your feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. Okay, that's just the foundation for what I want to talk about. Now we've got the basis here. So here we go. So, so these guy, guys, I keep calling them guys, these monks, the, the Buddha, have been living, they're living together in this park. And every day, a couple of them will go into the village nearby and get food and then bring it back and share it with everybody. So that's the story about this time together. They didn't even all go in alms round, just a couple of them would. And it sounds like the Buddha was kind of just like teaching them the whole time. 
That's why they would just send like a couple people in because they didn't want to like lose time. So I think these two suttas, even though it's said that they were given like two weeks apart, were probably not delivered as one chunk. They were probably just like sort of unfolded over time. But we're sitting in, we're in this deer park and we've gotten this teaching about the middle way and the eightfold path and the four noble truths. We're starting to get this real great picture. And now the Buddha just brings up this whole other thing. He says, bhikkhus, which is the name for monks, form is non-self. So this is why I wanted to bring up the aggregates because this sutta is actually about, he uses the aggregates as a way of building a story. Form is non-self. If form were self, form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to, to have it a form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. So typically, you know, convoluted, strange way of saying this. But he's saying, your body is not you. If it were you, it wouldn't cause you pain. You, it would, you'd be able to say, I want to feel like this. I want to look like this. I don't want to age. You know, you'd be in control of it. So this is, it sort of shows us how the Buddha views ownership. To him, if something, if something is self or it's owned by you, then you you can control it. Now you could debate that question, but that's that is a given in in Buddhist teachings that if something is self, it is you have control over it. Because form is not self, form leads to aff affliction, and it is not possible to have a, a form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. He then goes through the other four aggregates saying the exact same thing. Feeling is not self. If feeling were self, it would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it of feeling, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus. We can see, yeah, that, that'd be nice, right? I could control how I feel. Same with volitional formation or perception, volitional formations, consciousness. I, uh, and so I don't have control over these things. And so they aren't, I can't call them me. So let me step back a little bit because he doesn't say this. But what we learn in other suttas is that, and the reason the Buddha calls, says that the, that suffering is the five aggregates subject to clinging is that the Buddha claims and makes a pretty good <laughs> same, you know, he has a pretty good reason to claim this, that it's these five things that give us the sense that there is a self. Our body, our feelings, our perceptions, which really include kind of our opinions, our, our way of seeing the world, 
our volitional formations and our mental formations, things that arise as impulses and what we want to do, our consciousness. We live inside this thing that seems like a solid thing, which is all this stuff together. But we see that when we take it apart, that it's actually just a construction. So not only are the aggregates themselves heaps, but the aggregates together are a heap, <laughs> we could say. And we keep getting fooled by them because we think, oh, this is my body. I'm walking around with it all the time. It's mine. But the Buddha it's like, you know, not really. If it were yours, would you look that way? Would you feel this way? I'd be like, no, I'd have more hair. But anyway, so, so this is just like, it's the logic of the, of the Buddha, which is quite interesting, you know, the way he thinks. So then he moves on. He's like, okay. He he's, feels that he's made, the, made it clear that none of these aggregates belong to you or that they uh, they actually define none of them define you so then he says what do you think monks is form permanent or impermanent you know like impermanent venerable sir is what is impermanent suffering or happiness suffering venerable sir so here we got to say suffering is a translation of the word dukkha which many of you have been hanging around san francisco insight for a while are familiar with that term i don't think here suffering is a great sort of translation of dukkha a better translation of dukkha here which is one of the common translations is satisfactory or un unsatisfactory i should say so is what is impermanent satisfactory or unsatisfactory and we know like of course if if something can't stay it can't satisfy you because satisfaction is a resolution it's a completion that's the end of something and if something is in constant movement it doesn't end so my body can't satisfy me because i can get to a point where it feels really good like i had a really nice meal and a you know, some good cup of tea and everything feels great. You know, and 15 minutes later, uh, I got to go to the bathroom. Uh, I, I want to lie down. I'm tired. You know, something ch it changes, right? So we can't get to this point of satisfaction. And so this is, again, the logic of the Buddha. If it's impermanent, it can't satisfy you by definition. It can only give you momentary pleasure. And then he pushes on. Is what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. So this is once again zeroing in on this idea of can this, can we call this a self? If it's constantly changing, it can't satisfy you, you know. How can you say that it's it's you? So this is so he has three different ways of, of putting this. This is mine. So do I own my feelings? Do I own my body? No, not by his definition. Am I this body? That's just a slight different view. Okay. No, I am that's it doesn't define me. No. It's I don't own it. It doesn't define me. Is this myself? Am I this? No, I'm not. 
So again, he goes through the five aggregates with these series of questions. You know, uh, is is feeling permanent or impermanent? Is perception permanent or impermanent, etc. And so there, then he says, therefore, monks, any kind of form, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form should be seen as it really is with correct vision. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And so on. All feeling is not mine, but, you know. All perception is not mine, not me. All volitional formations are not me, mine. And consciousness is not me or mine. So here, you know, I mentioned that with form, we could say maybe it's not just referring to our own body, because here he says um, far or near. You know, everything else could be you, whether past, future, or present, okay, that could be your body, internal or external, sure, gross or subtle, but far or near. But then when you put that in with feelings, it doesn't really make any sense. So, so I think we'll just think of this as like, we're really just talking about our own experience. So this is, this is how the Buddha builds this logic, you know, of not self. It's, and it, and it's, you know, one of the really kind of identifying teachings of Buddhism that's distinct from any other religion, as far as I know. Um, and and it's you know it's a point that so often uh, people get confused about. Oh, if there's no self, then you know what? Who? What am I here? And who am I? Um, but the way he breaks it down, I think, is, you know, it, it has this internal logic that I find very compelling. Ultimately, though, if I can say ultimately, <laughs> he's not really teaching this in order for people to come to a logical conclusion that there is not a self. He's really trying to have you something change inside you, what we call transformative insight. He's trying through this process, and this is why one of the reasons we meditate, he's trying to get you to, to see this for yourself, to have insight, right? San Francisco insight, Vipassana, to not just get it up here, but to feel it deeply in the heart and to, and to really start to live from this place that's like, oh, like this is a, an illusion, this idea of self. You know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talks about, um, let's see if I might have this, this quote nearby, but uh, he says that, He's talking about the um, the insight into impermanence, which is, you know, again, one of these key insights. He says that 
you know, understanding it logically is not really the point. It's good, it's helpful, but the point really is to have a deep insight, a transformative insight into this. Um, he says, he distinguishes between the notion of impermanence and the insight of impermanence. He says, when you are able to see the nature of impermanence, you'll begin to see the nature of non-self. So we can see that this is not just talking about an idea, the notion of impermanence. And so, so this is why we practice with these ideas. So one of the ways to practice with this teaching, with the aggregates, is when you're meditating, to just kind of reflect. You can, you can actually do it almost as a, a recitation to yourself. Just sitting and asking yourself, is this body permanent or or just go i feel the impermanence of my body and and sense into that i feel the impermanence of my feelings i see the impermanence of the thoughts arising in my mind just sort of pointing to that and you know is this is this body right now is it dukkha is it satisfying is it unsatisfactory is are these feelings right now are they satisfying and sort of kind of go through the aggregates which is one reason to sort of learn the aggregates but you don't even necessarily have to go through those specific aggregates because it's more to me it's enough to just go okay my body feeling my body my emotions my thoughts the ordinary ways that we think about the mind rather than these kind of very uh you know Buddhist, early Buddhist view of mind. It's enough to just go, you know, are these, is this emotion me? Do I own this emotion? Is it mine? Does it belong to me in some way? And that's such an interesting question, right? To ask yourself, like, what, what is it about this emotion that I think it, that I own it? You know, it's, I didn't create it. And I can't hold on to it. No matter what I'm feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's just going to change. You know, you get into a good mood. It's like, I want to really stay in this mood. I'm, I'm keeping it. Nope, you can't take this mood away. No way, right? That's only going to make it worse. You know, so, so this is just so interesting, right? And then like, is, is this my thought? Like you have this thought, right? Like I'm such an idiot. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that thought, but I've had it. So it's like, I'm such an idiot. It's like, oh, wait, is that, is that my thought? Do I own that thought? Like, do I have to believe that thought? Which is of course, another really good thing to ask. Do I have to believe this? Do I have to believe this feeling? Because our feelings are even more insidious in this way. I have a feeling that's unpleasant. And then I put a name on it that's like, oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> I'm angry. Or whatever. And it's just, 
like then it's like, well, any anybody would have a feeling like this must be a bad person. You know, why would I, I must be, what's wrong with me that I have these feelings? Other people don't have these feelings. And we create this whole thing. It's like, wait, stop. What's What's true here? Like words, images, ideas arose in the mind. A relationship to them happened, a belief or a non-belief. And then, but there's this whole package of it. Yeah, but it's me, isn't it? <laughs> it was, I mean, Descartes told me, you know, I think therefore I am, so that my thoughts must be me. It's like, oh God, what a what a thing to be bought into, right? But and this is one of the wonderful things about mindfulness meditation, watching your mind. If you watch your mind, after a while you realize. Well, Wes Nisker puts it best. Your mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> I mean, that's like captures it, right? Because it doesn't, it, you're not controlling it. Or, you know, if if these thoughts were mine, they wouldn't lead to affliction. You know, because I would be able to say to my thoughts, let my thoughts be thus. Let my thoughts not be thus. They're not mine. They're just these things that show up. And so then this is why we say we're not trying to stop thinking in mindfulness meditation. We're trying to change our relationship to our thoughts. So if you change your relationship to your thoughts and say, okay, this isn't my thought and this isn't me, it doesn't belong to me and it doesn't define me, then it's just an object appearing in consciousness. And I can go, hello, isn't that interesting? that weird object that had just appeared in my consciousness. See ya, <laughs> wouldn't want to be ya. You know, just like, just because you can't hold on to that. Even if it's like, I'm the worst person in the world. Like five minutes later, you'll, you'll be thinking something else. Like, oh, I guess I was only the worst person in the world for 12 seconds. No, I'm not. So, it's just interesting, you know, how this this teaching from the Buddha that that really looks pretty abstract and and almost, somewhat almost inscrutable, you know, five aggregates, subject to clinging. When we take it apart, we see, oh, it's real. It really is about our direct human experience that we're having moment by moment by moment, and. It is about how we create suffering. And it's about how we create suffering by believing that all this stuff is me. And so we kind of back out of that. You know, it'd be great to have the transformative insight that I don't believe anything is me anymore. That's supposed to happen, you know, at a certain stage of enlightenment, right? But you don't have to be enlightened to like, just understand this. And rem so this is why the key before we get enlightened <laughs> is just to remember what's true. And, and that's why it's kind of helpful to realize that the word sati, which we translate as mindfulness, is tied into the word of, for memory in Pali. So there's different discussions about what that means, why the Buddha is using this word for memory. But I would say one of them should be, and this, this isn't like coming from a Pali scholar, but just a practical question. The, the 
mindfulness is only useful when we remember to be mindful. And so the first thing you have to do is remember to be mindful. It's not that hard to be mindful. Once you get the idea of what it is, remember to be mindful. And then remember like, oh, wait, what was I supposed to remember? Oh, yeah. My body is not myself. My thoughts are not myself. My feelings are not myself. I don't have to identify with these things. I don't have to be afraid of them. Even if they're really lousy, they're going to change. They're going to pass. And some good ones will show up at some point. You know? So, you know, this is, this is to me is like kind of the essence of living our practice is like, Get some, a little bit of a foundation. You don't need to know a lot, but sort of some of the basics of the Dharma and then try to remember them as often as you can and catch that. And your life gets better just by doing that. And, you know, I practice meditation every morning, partly because I'm just a habitual person, but it, one of the reasons we practice meditation is it then embeds the habit of remembering more. So I've I've gone longer than I was supposed to, I see. So I'm going to uh, leave it there and, and just to say, I hope that was of some value. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.